reading from the appeals court decision that Trump does not have immunity from criminal prosecution. Quote, a president must enforce the law. The take care clause plays a central role in signifying the principle that ours is a government of laws, not of men, and that we submit ourselves to rulers only if under rules. And then they said this, it would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with constitutional duty to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. And then there's this. We therefore conclude functional policy considerations rooted in the structure of our government do not immunize former presidents from federal criminal prosecution. And further on down, in the 57-page decision, there is this, quote, the indictment alleges that the assertedly official actions at issue here were undertaken by former President Trump in furtherance of a conspiracy to unlawfully overstay his term as president and to displace his duly elected successor. The alleged conduct also violated Article 11's mandate that a president, quote, hold his office during the term of four years. The 20th Amendment reinforces the discrete nature of a presidential term, explicitly providing that the terms of the president and vice president shall end at noon on the 20th day of January, and the terms of their successors shall then begin. Upon the expiration of the time for which he is elected, a former president returns to the mass of people again, and the power of the executive branch vests in the newly elected president. The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. They repeated that and wrote in parentheses, emphasis added. So that was important to them to say that. Quote, the president, of course, also has a duty under the Take Care Clause to faithfully enforce the laws. This duty encompasses following the legal procedures for determining election results and ensuring that executive power vests in the new president at the constitutionally appointed time. To the extent Former President Trump maintains that the post-2020 election litigation that his campaign and supporters unsuccessfully pursued implement his take-care duty. He is in error. Wow. Former President Trump's alleged conduct conflicts with his constitutional mandate to enforce the laws governing the process of electing the new president. The public 
has a strong interest in the foundational principle of our government, that the will of the people, as expressed in the Electoral College vote, determines who will serve as president. And then here they quote how the Constitution sets up the electors. Early in our history, states decided to tie electors to the presidential choices of citizens. The Supreme Court recently noted that the framers made the president the most democratic and politically accountable official in government, the only one who, along with the vice president, is elected by the entire nation to justify and check the president's unique authority in our constitutional structure, Article 2 renders the president directly accountable to the people through regular elections. As James Madison put it, a dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control of the government. The founders established a single chief executive accountable to the people so that the blame could be assigned to someone who can be punished. Wow. Thus, the quadrennial presidential election is a critical check on executive power because a president who adopts unpopular policies or violates the law can be voted out of office. I'm still quoting now. This is all from the document. Former President Trump's alleged efforts to remain in power despite losing the 2020 election were, if proven, an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. He allegedly injected himself into a process in which the president has no role, the counting and certifying of the electoral college votes, thereby undermining constitutionally established procedures and the will of the Congress. To immunize former President Trump's actions would further aggrandize the presidential office, already so potent and so relatively immune from judicial review at the expense of Congress. Quote, executive power has the advantage of concentration in a single head in whose choice the whole nation has a part, making him the focus of public hopes and expectations. In drama, magnitude, and finality, his decisions so far overshadow any others that almost alone he fills the public eye and ear. Still quoting, no other personality in public life can begin to compete with him in access to the public mind through modern methods of communications. By his prestige as head of state and his influence upon public opinion, he exerts a leverage upon those who are supposed to check and balance his power, which often cancels their 
effectiveness. We cannot accept former Trump's claim that a president has unbound authority to commit crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check on executive power, the recognition and implementation of election results. Nor can we sanction his apparent contention that the executive has carte blanche to violate the rights of individual citizens to vote and to have their votes counted. Wow. I'm Gloria Moraga. This is the Political Woman Podcast. All right, so I'm reading from the Trump decision, the appeals court rules is what I'm calling this. Wowie. I'm Gloria Moraga. This is the Political Woman Podcast. The United States Court of Appeals handed down this decision, and I've read through the document two or three times now, and, you know, I cut and pasted it, I downloaded it as a PDF, and then I converted it to a Word document, and then I I read through it in the PDF version, then I read through it in the Word version, and then I cut and pasted some over for the podcast. It's a beautiful document. If you are interested at all in the Constitution of the United States, if you're interested at all in government, and the law, it's a beautiful thing to read because they touch on all of the complaints that Trump has made and all of his arguments that he is immune from prosecution. And they just one by one, every sentence they write has an attachment, a footnote to it that points out a former lawsuit or argument that validates their decision and that shows how wrong Trump is. And it's just for those of us who have been watching this, some people call it clown show. It's just nice to read this legal decision from what some people say is the second most powerful court in the country. The District Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. It's just breathtaking that after you listen to all the lies for all these years and you know it's wrong and you know it's illegal, and you know that people aren't listening and they aren't reading and they have no idea what the Constitution says and nor do they care. It's, I don't know, it, it makes your heart feel better if you've been stressed out about this man. And I have been. I love this country so much. And I just, it's just been terrible. And reading these judges, and one of the judges, I mean, they're, they're, it's a legal document. And it's got the footnotes, and it's all the other cases I was reading, some of the other cases. Oh. This is going to be a long podcast because I'm, I'm just, I'm not reading the whole thing, obviously. But 
I am pulling out points. Here's how the document is laid out. It's in sections. So there's the title and the names of the attorneys, the names of the three judges. And I had listened to these arguments before the three judges and they were just so smart and asked so many good questions. So in sections, there's section one, background, section two, jurisdiction. Under jurisdiction, there's a circuit precedent. And then there's three, the executive immunity. And under the executive immunity section, there's A, separation of powers doctrine, B, fundamental policy considerations. And then under that, one, categorical immunity defense, two, immunity from the indictments charges. Under that, C, the impeachment judgment clause. They talk about how Trump was impeached twice, but he wasn't convicted. So under that, they talk about double jeopardy principles. And then impeachment is not a criminal. And what they mean there is that impeachment, the whole impeachment process is not a criminal process. So the impeachment process doesn't make you immune from a criminal process. And then there's something called a Blockburger test. I'm not even going to get into it because it's case law, but it's the conclusion. So let's get started. It starts out, opinion of the court filed procurium. And I looked up the definition of procurium. And a legal dictionary says, a decision made by a court of multiple judges as a whole entity rather than signed by one judge in particular. And then I looked it up in just a regular dictionary. And the term procurium refers to a decision made by a court of numerous judges, but without a particular author's name attached to the decision. So that means that all three of the judges agree with everything that's in this document. Does it give it more oomph? Does it give it more power? I think so, but I'm not a legal expert. I don't know. But it seems like it does. Part one, background. Donald J. Trump was elected the 45th president of the United States on November 8th, 2016. He was sworn into office at noon on January 20th, 2017, and served until his term expired at noon on January 20th, 2021. At that moment, President Trump became former President Trump, and his successor, Joseph R. Biden, became president and began his own four-year term. Although this sequence is set by the Constitution, it did not proceed peacefully. Indeed, from Election Day 2020 forward, the government alleges that President Trump denied that he had lost his bid for a second term and challenged the election results through litigation, pressure on state and federal officers, the organization of an alternative slate of electors, and other beans. His alleged interference in the constitutionally prescribed sequence culminated with a Washington, D.C. rally held on January 6, 2021, the day set by the Electoral Count Act for the Congress to meet in joint session to certify the election results. The reason that I paused there is because after some of these sentences and in the middle of some of these sentences, they cite the Constitution. 
They cite the section of the Constitution or they cite case law or they cite federal law. So I'm doing some pausing because I didn't clean it up totally because I wanted to keep some of those references. The rally, headlined by President Trump, resulted in a march of thousands to the Capitol and the violent breach of the Capitol building. The breach delayed the congressional proceedings for several hours, and it was not until early the morning of January 7th that the 2020 presidential election results were certified, naming Joseph R. Biden as the soon-to-be 46th president. Since then, hundreds of people who breached the Capitol on January 6, 2021, have been prosecuted and imprisoned. And on August 1, 2023, in Washington, D.C., former President Trump was charged in a four-count indictment as a result of his actions challenging the election results and interfering with the sequence set forth in the Constitution for the transfer of power from one president to the next. Former President Trump moved to dismiss the indictment, and the district court denied his motion. Today, we affirm the denial. And that's it right there. This is on page 10. That's it right there. We affirm the denial. The court has denied his appeal. So now we go on. And the, I continue to quote from the background. For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. The background continues. Former President Trump did not concede the 2020 election, and in the ensuing months, he and his supporters made numerous attempts to challenge the results. Many of their attempts were allegedly criminal. A District of Columbia federal grand jury indicted former President Trump on four criminal counts arising from the steps he allegedly took to change the outcome of the election. And then they go through the counts. Count one, conspiracy to defraud the United States by overturning the election results. Count two, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, i.e., the Congress's certification of the electoral vote. And after each of these, they list what law was violated. Count three, obstruction of and attempt to obstruct the certification of the electoral vote. Count four, conspiracy against the rights of one or more persons to vote and to have their votes count. At this stage of the prosecution, we assume that the allegations set forth in the indictment are true. And then they cite case law on why they assume that, because we want to get to the trial and have a jury decide. We emphasize that whether the indictment's allegations are supported by evidence sufficient to sustain convictions must be determined at a later stage of the prosecution. The indictment alleges that former President Trump understood that he had lost the election and that the election results were legitimate, but 
he nonetheless was, quote, determined to remain in power. Indictment two, he then conspired with others to cast doubt on the election's outcome and contrived to have himself declared the winner. The former President Trump's campaign and his supporters also unsuccessfully challenged the election results in several state and federal courts. And this is me talking. He lost every freaking one of them. The indictment charges that he and his co-conspirators allegedly advanced their goal through five primary means. First, they used knowingly false claims of election fraud to attempt to persuade state legislators and election officials to change each state's electoral votes in former President Trump's favor. For example, he and his allies falsely declared that more than 10,000 dead voters had voted in Georgia, that there had been 205,000 more votes than voters in Pennsylvania, and that more than 30,000 non-citizens had voted in Arizona, and that voting machines had switched votes from Trump to Biden. Second, then-President Trump and his co-conspirators organized fraudulent slates of electors in seven targeted states, attempting to mimic the procedures that the legitimate electors were supposed to follow. Then they caused these fraudulent electors to transmit their false certificates to the vice president and other government officials to be counted at the certification proceeding on January 6th. Third, then-President Trump and his co-conspirators pressed officials at the Department of Justice to conduct sham election crime investigations and sent a letter to the targeted states that falsely claimed that the Justice Department had identified significant concerns that may have impacted the election outcome. Fourth, then-President Trump and his co-conspirators attempted to convince then-Vice President Pence to use his ceremonial role at the January 6th certification proceedings to fraudulently alter the election results. When the vice president rebuffed them, he stirred his base of supporters to increase pressure on the vice president. Ultimately, on the morning of January 6th, 2021, he held a rally in Washington, D.C., where he repeated knowingly false claims of election fraud to gathered supporters and directed them to the Capitol to obstruct the certification proceedings and exert pressure on the vice president to take the fraudulent actions that he had previously refused. Fifth, and finally, from the January 6th rally, Thousands of his supporters, including individuals who had traveled to Washington to the Capitol at his direction, swarmed the United States Capitol, causing violence and chaos that required the Congress to temporarily halt the election certification proceeding. At that point, he and his co-conspirators exploited the disruption by redoubling efforts to levy false claims of election fraud and convince members of Congress to further delay the certification. Then-President Trump's efforts to overturn the election results were unsuccessful, and the Congress certified the Electoral College vote in favor of President-elect 
Biden. On January 11, 2021, nine days before President-elect Biden's inauguration, the House of Representatives adopted an impeachment resolution charging then-President Trump with incitement of an insurrection. And then it goes on to talk about the impeachment proceedings and what happened. Importantly, by the time the United States Senate conducted a trial on the articles of impeachment, he had become former President Trump. At the close of the trial on February 13th, 2021, 57 senators voted to convict him and 43 voted to acquit him. Because two-thirds of the Senate did not vote for conviction, he was acquitted on the articles of impeachment. On November 18th, 2022, U.S. Attorney General appointed John L. Smith as special counsel to investigate, quote, efforts to interfere with the lawful transition of power following the 2020 presidential election or the certification of the Electoral College vote. Of course, John L. Smith is Jack Smith, who is also the name of my dog that I did name after Jack Smith. A Washington, D.C. grand jury returned the instant, I don't know why it says instant, returned the instant four-count indictment against former President Trump on August 1st, 2023. On August 28, 2023, the district court set a trial date of March 4th, 2024. Former President Trump filed four motions to dismiss the indictment relying on one, presidential immunity, two, constitutional provisions including the impeachment judgment clause and principles stemming from double jeopardy, three, statutory grounds, and four, allegations of selective and vindictive prosecution. On December 1st, 2023, the district court issued a written opinion denying the two motions that are based on presidential immunity and the two constitutional provisions. That was Judge Tanya Chutkin's decision. That's the decision that's... That's Jack Smith barking. In relevant part, the district court rejected Trump's claim of executive immunity from criminal prosecution, holding that former presidents enjoy no special conditions on their federal criminal liability. It concluded that the Constitution's text, structure, and history do not support the existence of such an immunity and that it would betray the public's interest to grant a former president a categorical exemption from criminal liability for allegedly attempting to usurp the reins of government. That court, Tanya Chetkin, also held that neither traditional double jeopardy principles nor the impeachment judgment clause provided that a prosecution following impeachment acquittal violates double jeopardy. Former President Trump filed an interlocutory appeal of the district court's presidential immunity and double jeopardy holdings. On December 13, 2023, we granted the government's motion to expedite the appeal and oral arguments were held on January 9, 2024. So that's 
That's the end of the introduction. The next section is jurisdiction and know that all of the things that I mentioned, all of the different sections, they go through each point that Trump made and they blow it up. They blow it to smithereens, my friends. So I'll end with some more great quotes. And this is a quote, quote, at the bottom, former President Trump's stance that he is immune would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches. Presidential immunity against federal indictment would mean that as the president, the Congress could not legislate, the executive could not prosecute, and the judiciary could not review. We cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. Careful evaluation of these concerns leads us to conclude that there is no fundamental jurisdiction for immunizing former presidents from federal prosecution in general or for immunizing former President Trump from the specific charges in the indictment. In so holding, we act not in derogation of the separation of powers, but to maintain their proper balance. We have balanced former President Trump's asserted interests in executive immunity against the vital public interests that favor allowing his prosecution to proceed. We conclude that concerns of public policy, especially as illuminated by our history and the structure of our government, compel the rejection of his claim of immunity. We have considered his contention that he is entitled to categorical immunity from criminal liability for any assertedly official action that he took as president, a contention that is unsupported by precedent, history, or the text and structure of the Constitution. Finally, we are unpersuaded by his argument that this prosecution is barred by double jeopardy principles. Accordingly, the order of the district court is affirmed. So ordered. I'm Gloria Moraga, political woman. Trump has until Monday to file an appeal to the United States Supreme Court. And know that I'm recording this. It's already early Thursday morning, and in a couple of hours, the Supreme Court's going to hear the Colorado case that keeps Trump off the ballot in Colorado. So the Supreme Court's doing that on Thursday, and then on Monday, Trump has until Monday to file an appeal of the appeals court ruling to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court could not take it. They could say it's, all, it's already been, the appeals court said everything that we need to say. 
because this document is so perfect. It's beautiful. Thanks for listening. I love you all so much. Thanks for being here for me. Please subscribe. Please follow me on TikTok. Please follow me on YouTube. Subscribe. I need subscribers. I actually need people to watch my videos because I can't monetize until I get more listeners. I don't know. It's some like thing. Love you. Be safe. <laughs>